The scripture reading is from Job uh, 9, 14 through 35. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the, ni- in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I, am summon- if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless, I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say I will not forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all of my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet uh, you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. This is the word of the Lord. After hearing that passage, you just want to go, woo yeah! It comes from the book of Job. And we're going to look at Job today, broadly. But we wanted to lift that up, just so we know kind of where Job was at, at this moment. And so we'll dig into that in a minute. On Thursday, I had the honor, the privilege of going into the city of Perth on two occasions. One was to go to the consulate to get passports for my girls, and the other one was to go into Kurong and look for some Bible study material. On both occasions, I rode the bus and the train in the bus. Uh, I got early into Perth, and what I noticed on my way in and on my way back, and then on my way in and on my way back was that multiple people walked around, sat in the bus, were walking down the streets, and many of them, if not the majority of them, all had headphones in. They all were walking around with headphones in. They were listening to something or talking to someone on their phone. 
Now, there were groups of children who were getting ready to go to school who were all talking very loudly where everybody else that was in the train were having to put their hands over their headphones so they could actually pay attention to what was going on in whatever music or podcast or radio show or conversation they were having. I decided for some odd reason not to take my headphones. And so I just paid attention to what was going on. And I began to wonder to myself, well, what are they listening to? I wonder why they're listening to that. Are are they listening to music? Are they listening to podcasts, to a sermon, to a book on tape? Are they listening to ABC radio streaming live? Are they having a conversation with their partner? Are they having a conversation with their mom and dad? Are they having a conversation with work, trying to get things started before they ever get there? I began to listen to the children talking, which you never want to do that. But what really struck me was that there was no opportunity for silence. There was no place for anyone to be still and silent. And it made me think of the epidemic of noise that we actually have in our world today. That there is in some way a place in our own hearts, in our own psyches, where we have decided that I must keep the level of noise at a certain place so that I never stop to actually think about what is going on in the world. That there are things that are happening individually, microcosmly in my own life, but there are things that are happening in the world out there that I just don't want to think about. Because if I begin to think about those things, I can easily run to anger or despair or worry. And I know those things aren't right to run to. I should never be angry. I should never have despair. I should never worry. And so I'm just going to stop. I'm going to let the noise be so loud that my brain never has the opportunity to think about those things. What I want to let you know is that we're missing out in a crucial gift from God. He says, be still and know that I am God. We have to allow the noise to get away so that we will engage in those places of hurt, those places of despair, those places of grief, those places of anger, and then we have to move into this place of lament. Oh, it's a scary word for us. It makes us nervous when we think about it. Michael Card in his book about lament called A Sacred Sorrow says this, as we begin to try and understand the shape of the world into which we are born, we would all soon experience the shushing of parents whenever we would inevitably erupt into the wailing of our first infant laments. Contained somewhere in the heart of these demands to be quiet. Beneath the sincere attempts to comfort us lays a level of shame and an inescapable message to us that we should not cry out. That we should not behave in such ways. The wanting for comfort of presence and the assurance of a steadfast love were told to us to somehow be selfish. And at that frustrating moment when we enter into being a very first human, we fall into this place of denial to keep ourselves quiet, which is the polar opposite of lament. 
Mark Vorgrop wrote a book called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercies. And he says this, that lament for us is the song we sing when the divine blessings seem so far away. When we look at the book of Job and we see him standing there, we understand he calls out and says, I'm blameless and I want to talk to God, but there's no way I'm going to do it. I need somebody to step in between he and I. Now what's going on is this magnificent story of Satan coming to God and saying, you see your man Job? He's only faithful because you've blessed him. And God says, no, he's faithful because he knows my love for him. And Satan says, make you a bet. Let me take all those things away and he'll curse you. And God says, no, he won't. Now that's in the heavenlies. I don't know how all that happens. I don't know what's going on there. I believe that it is 100% reality. Truth. There are those who say it's allegory and that's fine. What I'm saying is I believe it's 100% reality. And so Satan comes and he wreaks havoc on Job. He takes away all his wealth. He takes away all his homes. He takes away all of his children. So much to the point where his wife says, would you just curse God and die? But he doesn't. And Satan says, well, you've only let me attack all of the things around him, all of the people that he loves. Let me get him. And so God says, okay. And he afflicts him with sickness. And he has boils that he's scraping out the pus just to be as gross as I can on a Sunday morning. And he doesn't. And three of his friends come and they sit with him in silence. Just a little hint. Sometimes that's the best thing that we can do. Because when they open their mouth, they really screw up. But in what happens in the story of Job and how he interacts with his friends and how he interacts with God and how he interacts with his suffering, what we begin to recognize is that lament is a gift from God that gives us certain things. So the first thing that a lament from God gives us is it helps us to see that the world is broken. You see, Job had everything going for him. We would look at him and think that he was the pinnacle of success, that all things good were taking place and he deserved them. And when they were all gone, it caused him to cry out. As a matter of fact, he cries out and says, I'm blameless and I can't even talk to my accuser because I know he won't listen to me. But in it, what he's recognizing is the world is broken. That no matter how good I think things are, something will fall apart. Now, whether it be in a personal sense or whether it be in a large sense, and let's be honest, when we allow the noise to die down in our life and we begin to look at the world, sometimes it just crashes in on us when it's a diagnosis that we had not expected or an accident that happens to us or a relationship that we thought was so solid that falls apart. Or that job that we knew we were getting a promotion and all of a sudden it's no longer there. But sometimes it's by looking at the world and saying the oppression. As James prayed about the Christians who are persecuted and killed. We also know that there was a a shooting last week in a a Jewish uh, temple in America. A man who grew up in a church. 
and we hear it and we see it and we recognize that the world is broken. Kathleen O'Connor, in a book that she wrote about lamentation, says this. She says that what lament does for us is it names what is wrong, what is out of order in God's world, what keeps human beings from thriving in all their creative potential. Simple acts of a lament expose the conditions, names them, and makes them visible for remedy. Stacey Gildensmith provides us this helpful explanation. A lament honestly and specifically names a situation or a circumstance that is painful, wrong, or unjust. In other words, a circumstance that does not align with God's character and therefore does not make sense within God's kingdom. See, when God created the world, He created it to be good, to be perfect, to be holy. And then it fell. It was broken. And in that brokenness is where we reside. And so as much as we want to say, she'll be right, it'll all work out in the end, we have to honestly assess the world and go, there are places that are so fractured that it will take something supernatural to make them happen. But too often we sit back in silence and we don't speak it by name. Because we're so afraid that if we do and we have to encounter it, we might lose our faith or we might lose our friends or because we've been too raw and too honest. But what we're reminded by Job is we have to scream it out. We have to shout it out and lament in order for us to name it, in order for it to be seen, in order for it to be engaged with. And so we see that lament reminds us that the world is broken. The second thing that lament does for us is this. It reminds us that our understanding of God is often incorrect. So Job's three friends, they show up and they sit silently. Good. Then they open their mouths. Really bad. And they begin to tell him what he has either won, done wrong. Well, you're being punished by God. You've done so much wrong that God is having to punish you, to correct you, to get you right. right? Or they're saying that God is just an arbiter of good and evil, and he determines that based on what we do. We rest very often in a pagan understanding of God. And by pagan, I mean this. It's an understanding that if I do God good, then God will bless me. And if I do bad, according to what I think God is meaning in bad, then God will punish me. We think to ourselves that if I start thinking the wrong way or acting the wrong way, then I'm bound to be punished. And if I don't, then I'm bound to be rewarded. So if I just do what's good and I do what's right, then all things will be good to me. That's, that's witchcraft. That's saying the right potions and saying the right incantations to get what we desire. That's Aladdin a terrible remake movie that's coming out where they're going to rub the magic genie lamp and get our wishes and what is required, what we want. But that's what his friends say. You've done something wrong. That's the reason why in chapter 9 here, Job says to them, I'm blameless. I've not done anything wrong. Now, deep down, he knows that he's probably done some things that are wrong. 
But at that point, he's recognizing, no, you guys have a bad understanding of God. Why do we know that? Because of what he says about God, which is true. He says this. Oh, let me find it. Therefore, I'm in the right. My own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. I'm blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. What what Job is trying to point out here in in a very rough way is that it's really not about our actions. And we would go as far as to say that God actually is loving in his actions, pursuing us in love to bring us into whole relationships. That our understanding is that when the brokenness of the world happened, that all God has been about is restoring it back to the way that it was. That he makes all things new as they always were. As the intended place was. And so it's not about my actions or inactions. They have consequences. (laughs) They bring about things in the world. But our understanding of God is not that he's sitting up there with a checklist going, three goods, three bads, hmm, balanced out. I'll leave them alone today. Four bads, two goods, got to do something. Break down their car, make them lose their job, give them cancer. Right? Oh, we don't ever think that way about God. So it reminds us that the world is broken. It reminds us that sometimes our, our view and understanding of God is messed up. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this when he talks about how we put our minds on other idols. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Too often for us, it's our material possessions or it's our job or it's that one relationship or it's how we're perceived or it's the pleasure that I might receive becomes our God. And so when it fails us, we believe God has failed us and that he's punishing us because we haven't done something that he wanted us to do. And that is incorrect. That's because we've elevated an idol in our own life. And that's why we have to lament. The third thing that lament does for us that helps Job here is it says that it gives us a way to move forward. Lament gives us a way to move forward. Uh, There's a young lady named Nora McKenner and she uh, wrote a book and has a group called The Young Hot widows club she lost a baby through miscarriage her dad and her husband all within two months of each other tragic right and she met with lots of other women who had lost their husbands and they were young and hot and they formed this widows club and she asked them all what was the thing that you hated hearing the most and she said it was the words move on you got to move on you got to move on See, that's not lament. That's denial. Lament says, no, we move forward. 
Lament says that I will never lose the pain and the scars and the suffering. I'm not going to lose these things that now define part of who I am. I don't forget about them. I scream out about them and I move forward. In Job, what we discover is this, a person who simply will not let go of God in spite of death, disease, isolation from all his friends and family, and ultimately the perceived abandonment from God. Those around him, including his wife, ask him to die. But Job, who like Jacob, wrestles faithfully with God, stays there. And the question becomes, how does he do that? How does Job maintain his sanity? How does he stick with the faith that he has in God through all this turmoil? Well, it was by only the fact that he has hope in God. The answer is this. He sings a song of lament, not a song of denial. And the song of lament keeps him on the dance floor with God. It's this outpouring of frustration that allows him to engage with God in a way that we often would deny ourselves because we're so afraid that God can't handle it. He was honest and said, I don't get this. I'm blameless. Where are you at? And in the end, what it does is lament leads us to worship. Lament moves us into a place of worship and understanding who God is. In this particular passage, Job says there needs to be somebody that stands between God and I. There needs to be an arbiter. 1 John 2, 1 reminds us of these words. Listen to how beautiful, beautiful they are. My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, if any brokenness comes into your life, if any place where there should be grief and turmoil erupts into what you think is your perfect existence, hear this, that you have an advocate, an arbiter with the Father. It is Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ, the righteousness. You see, it leads us to worship. And it reminds us of this, that worship for us is not just about feeling good. It's not just about joy. It's not just about prosperity, though those are part of it and at the heart of it. If that were just true, then according to the modern world and their understanding of worship, then the poor would have nothing to say and nothing to value to bring to God. Look, Jesus says, come, those who are labor are in heavy laden so that you can find rest in me. Who could possibly conceive of a God who would want to receive such worthless, empty offerings of people who say, I have nothing, only anger, only grief, only despair. Lament is that path. It takes us to the place where we discover that there is no complete answer to pain and suffering, but only the presence of God. The language of lament, as Michael Card reminds us, gives us a meaningful forum for our grief by providing a vocabulary for us in our suffering and then an offering to God in worship. 
our questions and complaints will never find individual answers. The only answer is the dangerous, disturbing, comforting presence, which is the presence of God. Michael says this, to pray in pain, even with its messy struggle and tough questions, is an act of faith where we open our hearts to God. Prayerful lament is better than silence. However, I have found that many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, and too risky. But there's something far worse. Silence. Despair. Giving God the silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. Despair lives under the hopeless resignation that God doesn't care. He doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this, they stop praying. They give up. However, lament through worship helps direct our emotions by prayerfully vocalizing our hurt, our questions, and even our doubts. Turning to prayer through lament is one of the deepest and most costly demonstrations of a belief in God. (laughs) So, can we be honest? Can we say that there are places right now in my heart and in my mind that I'm angry at God? That I don't understand what He's done and why He's done it? Can I say, I'd like an answer and I'd like it now as quick as possible? Can we be honest and say, I've been hurt so bad, God, that it's so hard for me to trust any other human you put in my life? I can't even reach out to touch them. As a matter of fact, the fear of touching someone or having them touch me causes me to run away and hide because of the abuse that I've felt. What's up with that, God? Can we be honest and say, I'm hungry tonight and I'm hungry tomorrow and I'll be hungry a third day? Can we say, I've tried to kick this addiction over and over and over again and I just keep coming back to it, God. Where are you at? What's the deal? Because see, when we're silent about those things, when we don't voice them, listen, and here's the cool thing. God didn't give you yourself to voice it yourself. He gave you us, His body to voice it together. Because when we stop voicing it, we are saying you no longer exist. You have no power. You now have no place. So practically, what does it look like for you to lament over this next month? What does it look like for us? What's that structure look like? Well, if you look through the Psalms, which we will, and those Psalms of lament, what we see is there's four characteristics of lament that I want to give you. The first is an address. It's saying to God, God, Hey, you, dude, up there, on high, I'm tired of you. It's a lament. It's saying to him, God, and getting his attention, even though you already have it. The second thing is a complaint. It's going to God and saying, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I'm really angry about this. Here's what's going on. I'm not sure you remember all your promises, God. Come on. Do you recognize that you're not taking care of me the way that I think you should? Then it's a request. 
This is what I want you to do. <laughs> Can we be that bold? This is what I want you to do. And then it's an expression of trust because we know lament takes us to worship. That we say, God, you are high and lifted up. You are mighty and you're exalted. Your steadfast love is new every morning. Your mercy rains down on me every day. I don't get what's going on, but I will trust. Help me trust. I will trust. Help me trust. I will trust. Help me trust. Lament takes us deeper in our walk with God. It moves us to a place where we interact with Him on a completely different level. It's a place where God will come in and He says, I'm glad you finally recognize your hurts. You've been skimming the surface for way too long. So as we walk through this series together, remember that lament is worship. And our whole lives are called to be about worship. That lament, we'll learn next week, leads us to trust. That lament will lead us the next week to hope. And the lament on the last week will lead us to justice. We'll walk in those ways. And we'll see how lament leads us to those places. Every Sunday, as a song of response, we're going to sing a new song. It'll be new to you today. By the end of this, it won't be so new. And you can go ahead and turn on page 11 to that song as we prepare to sing it. And it's called, All You Do Is Good. It's a song that was written by a friend of mine, but it's a song that will remind us as we come to this place of lament who it is that we trust, who it is that we put our hope in, who it is who knows what true justice is, and we will walk into that place together. Because what happens is God shows up in our lament. And he brings us his kindness and comfort. Let me pray for us as we prepare to sing. Father God, you are good and all you do is good. We long for you. Let us hear your call for us to lament and our call, your call for comfort. Let these words be your words and if they're not, let them burn up and blow away. But if they are, let them take root in our hearts. Thank you for Job. Thank you that he was faithful. Even when he said he wasn't blameless, he was faithful. He put his trust in you completely. Thank you that he did not remain silent too long with you, but engaged. Help us to learn not to be silent and show our unbelief. Jesus, you are our advocate, and we give you glory and honor. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand and sing this song of response?